Good afternoon and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm your host, Samantha Thomas, and today I'm talking with Stanford Law Professor Dr. Hank Greeley about gene editing, the controversial new technology that allows scientists to make precise changes to the DNA of humans and animals. Dr. Greeley, thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm really looking forward to discussing gene editing and all the attention it's getting right now with you. Why don't you start by telling us about some of the recent advances in this technology that are kind of bringing it into public discourse? Sure, I think this is a really exciting time in genetics and particularly in moving into genetic engineering. Uh, I see genetics as involving four different areas, uh, at least the application of genetics. We've got sequencing, we have editing, we have synthesis, and we have understanding what the genome means. Uh, the sequencing has just gone through a revolution where the price of sequencing a whole human genome has gone from about a half a billion dollars to about $1,500 and is expected to continue to sink. We are in the beginnings, I think, of a revolution in genome synthesis. Earlier this year, a group published that they had successfully synthesized an entire yeast chromosome hmm. and been able to show that it functioned inside yeast. With gene editing, we are right, I think, at the inflection point. We're not as far along as we are with genome sequencing costs and ease. We're farther along than we are in terms of genome synthesis, or at least chromosome synthesis. Uh, but CRISPR-Cas9 is the new discovery that has turned the corner on genome editing. We've been editing genomes. We've been changing the A's, C's, G's, and T's in organisms for at least 40 years through scientific methods. And if you think about selective breeding, a lot longer than that. But until recently, it's been difficult, expensive, time-consuming. It's taken postdocs and grad students, so taken expertise, uh, and it's not been very accurate. In 2012, Jennifer Doudna and Emmanuel Charpentier first published the idea of using a CRISPR-Cas9 system to do genome editing. Uh, this is a system that was actually invented by bacteria several billion years ago to use as a defense against invasion by phages, by various viruses that attack the bacteria. But Charpentier and Doudna figured out how to use it in a lab setting to attack and cut DNA at very, very specific points. Over the last three years, this has become more and more refined. It's been adopted by tens of thousands of labs all over the world. And what makes it so important is that it's an order of magnitude, cheaper, faster, more accurate, easier to do. At the International Summit meeting, December 1st through 3rd on human genome editing, people regularly said they could teach a three-year-old to do it. I pushed back on that a little bit, and they said, well, maybe not a three-year-old, but a 12-year-old. <laughs> Doesn't require the kind of expertise required before. The analogy I like to use is CRISPR-Cas9 is like the Model T. We don't drive Model Ts anymore. And I think in 10, 20 years, probably people won't be using CRISPR-Cas9, but they will be using cheap, easy genome editing. There were cars before the Model T, but they were really expensive. They broke down all the time. You needed to hire somebody who was a combination chauffeur mechanic in order to get use out of them. So they were rare. 
Model T came along and everybody could have a car. They were cheap and they were reliable. Well, CRISPR-Cas9 is the Model T of genome editing. It's going from being expensive, difficult, and rare to something that two guys in a garage with a couple hundred bucks can do anywhere in the world. That's a revolution. The fourth of these areas, understanding what it all means, ironically, is the one that we're least good at. <laughs> so we can do a bunch of sequencing, and now we can do a bunch of editing, but except for a few mainly nasty disease traits, we don't know nearly enough about what it means. So for the most part, yeah, we can edit human DNA. We just don't know what to take out and what to put in in its place and what the downstream consequences would be. When you say the downstream consequences, I know people are really concerned about those. What are they imagining that's so worrisome? Oh, they're imagining some combination of Brave New World, Gattaca, and maybe Frankenstein, and, and maybe throw in a little bit of Jurassic Park as well. Uh, I do think people build a lot on fictional representations, and that's useful. The fiction writers and movie writers and so on do useful job of imagining things and thinking through what would happen if X changes they do have a bias, though. Fiction is going to exaggerate the dramatic aspects of things. What people seem most concerned about with respect to genome editing is designer babies. Hmm. The idea that you'll be able to say, I want my baby to be a girl who will grow up to be six foot one with violet eyes and you know, auburn hair and be incredibly athletic and have great math ability. The problem with that fear is we don't actually know the genes for any of those things except being a girl versus being a boy. And even there, there's, there's occasionally some complications. So we don't know how to give you purple eyes or math ability or athletic ability or height. This goes back to that fourth area, the, the understanding what the sequence means. The single best way to predict a child's adult height is to know the child's sex and to know the adult height of the child's parents. People have looked for genetic connections because this is clearly something that's powerfully influenced by genes. You look at identical twins, you look at sibs, they're a lot closer in height than unrelated people. And yet we've now found scores of different genes that seem to be associated with height if you look at the percentage of the variation in height that can be explained by those genes, it's about 10% of the variation from person to person. Mm -hmm. You look at parental height, that explains about 85% of the variation. At least for today, and I think for you know, the next 10, 20, 30, maybe longer years, they're scared of something that we, can't, we don't actually know enough how to do. We can genome edit to make sure that a baby doesn't get a particular genetic disease that one or both of the parents have. That's something we could do. But we can't genome edit to make super babies or X-Men or even particularly smart, attractive, healthy kids. So their concern is based in the fact that this field is changing really quickly. We might soon be able to identify those genes. Now we can change them. 
Are those voices calling for a complete secession of research on this technology so that we never get to the point where it's possible? No. um, The main negative voices, and this has been incorporated in legislation in something like 30 or 40 countries around the, the world, are just calling for a stop to any kind of genome editing that passes down from one generation to the next, Hmm. so-called germline editing. So if you have beta thalassemia, for example, a blood disease, and we use genome editing through CRISPR or some other technique to change the genes in your bone marrow cells so that instead of making a mutant form of hemoglobin, they make the normal form of hemoglobin and cure you of your beta thalassemia, people are not very worried about that because that change lives and dies with you. Changing your bone marrow cells is not going to change your kids, except maybe give them a healthier parent, uh, but it's not going to get passed down to them. That's so-called somatic cell gene therapy or somatic cell genome editing. It's one of the exciting possible applications of CRISPR-Cas9. It's not new. We've been trying to do gene therapy for about 35 years. We're right now, I think, finally on the edge of having them become clinically available. The EU approved its first gene therapy last year. I think the U.S. will probably approve one in 2016 or 2017. CRISPR-Cas9, new forms of genome editing, make it easier to do gene therapy, somatic cell gene therapy, um, but not enormously so. People aren't, haven't been very worried about that. What they've been more worried about is the possibility that we could change your eggs or change my sperm so that the next generation wouldn't get beta thalassemia. Mm-hmm. That would be changing the human germline or the human germline genome. And that's been kind of a rallying cry of opponents. We shouldn't change the human germline genome. And to be fair, I think they picked that up from scientists 40 years ago or so when recombinant DNA technology was first being used and when the Asilomar conference was held in February of 1975 that put some self-imposed limitations by scientists for scientists on the use of recombinant DNA. Many of the prominent scientists said, don't worry about the long-run issues. We'll never change the human germline genome which was really easy to say because they couldn't couldn't. (laughs) at that point. Always easy to give up things that you can't do anyway. So I promise I will never beat Michael Jordan one-on-one in basketball. I can promise that pretty clearly. So people were promising we won't do human germline genome editing long before it became even possible. Well, that's not sort of possible. And people are, um, some people are opposed to it. The opposition sort of a combination of some sense of the sacredness of the human germline, uh, as well as a concern about justice issues uh, in terms of will only rich people be able to edit their germlines? Will we evolve into two different species? If you remember H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, will we turn into Morlocks and Eloy? Um, Again, fiction, fictional portrayals hang hang around for a long time and have some influence, at least the good fictional portrayals do. Um, So there are a lot of concerns along those lines. I think the germline is kind of a silly place to try to draw a line. Um, 
so what is the human germline genome? It's kind of a meaningless term, frankly. There are 7.3 billion of us humans. We have roughly 7.3 billion human germline genomes. If you count haploid genomes instead of diploid genomes, I mean, each of us has two genomes, really, one we got from our mom, one we got from our dad. In that sense, we have 14.6 billion human germline genomes. Which one is the human germline genome? Hmm. What's well, mine, but other people may disagree. <laughs> um, the genome, the human germline genome, is, is this huge fuzzy ball of 14.6 billion points over 23,000 dimensional space because there are about 23,000 genes. It's not a thing and it's not static. It changes every generation. Because of mutations, the DNA I inherited from my father and my mother is not the same as the DNA they inherited from their father and mother. And what I inherited from my parents isn't the same as what my kids got from me. The genome is always changing. So I'm not sure why people are so or should draw a line at germline modification. The germline changes with every birth through random mutations. Is it worse to change it in a way that eliminates diseases rather than just have it change randomly? Um, and what are we changing? You know, if you take somebody who, say, has the, 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 the genetic variation for Huntington's disease, so they have more than about 36 CAG repeats in a particular location on their Huntington and gene on chromosome 4. If we edited that out, and so instead of them having, say, 50 repeats, which is dangerous and causes disease, they only have 8 repeats, which is safe. And they pass that on to their children. Well, 8 repeats is found in the human genome in that great fuzzy ball. 50 repeats is found in the human germline genome. You are changing allele frequencies. You're changing how often one variation or another is found. You're not actually changing the genome. You're not putting something new in. You're just changing the frequencies of things that are already there. And you're changing them for health reasons. And typically, you're changing it from something that's rarer to something that's more common. I don't see that as something that should be the subject of a great symbolic line in the sand. It seems um, pretty meaningless to me or, or not particularly meaningful to me to change the human genome in the sense of one person's descendants are going to have a more common variation rather than a less common disease-causing variation, and they might pass that on. Civilization changes allele frequencies all the time. You know, the discovery of insulin let people who have a genetic predisposition to diabetes live long enough to have kids. That's changed allele frequencies. Agriculture changes allele frequencies. Happens all the time. To kind of help people understand the concerns and the arguments on both sides, I wonder if we could play out the dream scenario, right, where... Or we, nightmare. We well, first the dream scenario where this is properly regulated. We eradicate genetic diseases that we know of, kind of the way we've eliminated um, some infectious diseases, right? Like smallpox, polio. I think I think that's the dream scenario. Yes, but I think somebody listening to me might conclude I'm a big fan of 
human germline genome editing, at least for medical purposes. But in fact, I don't think it's a very big deal. Almost everything we want to do with respect to avoiding genetic diseases, we can do through a technology that's been used for over 25 years and is known to be relatively safe and effective. That's pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So if you have the allele that causes Huntington's disease, you will, unless you die first from something else, you will inevitably die from Huntington's disease. If you want to have children who don't get that allele, who are not going to get Huntington's disease, you don't need to edit their embryonic germlines or your own eggs to make babies. What you need to do is go through IVF, make some embryos, and test all those embryos to see whether they got the healthy or the unhealthy version of the Huntington gene, and then only transfer into a womb for possible pregnancy the embryos that have the healthy version. That's called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, PGD, first done in humans in 1990. About 4,000 American babies were born last year after PGD. So it's something we can do. You don't need to do genome editing in order to get those medical benefits. There are very, very few people who would need to do genome editing in order to have babies that did not have a particular genetic disease. If you've got a disease that's what we call dominant, where it takes only one bad copy to give you the disease, like Huntington's, and if you are unlucky enough to have two bad copies, you're going to pass one of them on to all of your kids, and so all those kids would get sick. If you have what we call an autosomal recessive disease where it takes two bad copies to make someone sick, but you've married somebody or having children with somebody who also has the same disease, so two people with cystic fibrosis meet, fall in love, want to have kids, two people with sickle cell anemia meet, fall in love, want to have kids, they would need to do genome editing because all the only versions they can pass on to their children are the bad versions. Now, how many such couples are there in the world? Not very many. How many of them are going to live long enough and be healthy enough to want to have kids? Not very many. So I don't actually think there's all that much medical benefit in doing human germline genome editing. There are people who say, well, we can clean up the gene line clean up the genome so that in the future people won't have to do PGD. And if we'll take out all the Huntington's so you don't have to even look for it. Well, maybe. Um, but there's not a huge necessity to do that. And you also never really know whether some of these diseases, disease genes might have some favorable uh, mm -hmm. implications that we don't know about yet. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, whether removing variation could be detrimental in ways that we don't understand. Yeah, so I think the best example of that is something called CCR5, which is a protein that sits on the outside of the cell membrane of T cells, white cells in your, in your blood. And HIV seems to need CCR5 in order to infect T cells. So a couple percent of the world's population doesn't make CCR5. They don't make good copies of it, and they appear to be completely immune from AIDS, from mm -hmm. HIV infection. So people have suggested, well, why don't we edit genomes to take out the CCR5 protein 
And it's kind of like vaccinating people. It's sort of like a genetic vaccination. Those people can't be HIV infected. And that sounds plausible, assuming that we know how safely to do genome editing and the safety issues are still at least a decade, will take at least a decade to resolve. But, you know, CCR5 is found in almost all humans. It's actually a pretty conserved molecule found in most mammals in very, very similar form. As far as we can tell, it doesn't do anything. There's a little bit of evidence that maybe people without it are more susceptible to West Nile uh, virus, but we really don't know very much about it, and maybe if we took it out, really bad things would happen. So genes are complicated. They usually do lots of different things, and sometimes you know, you, you think you're, you understand one way the gene works, but there may be other important ways you don't understand that make taking it out or changing it uh, in the long run a bad idea. Okay. You do not make the dream scenario sound very glamorous. So let's go to the nightmare scenario. 20 years in the future, we've identified genes for all kinds of traits, and the genome editing technology is completely unregulated. People are doing it in their garages. What's the nightmare scenario? What does the world look like if that happens? Well, I think some people's nightmare scenario is a hereditary caste of genetically enhanced superhumans has the rest of us under the heel of their boots. And darkness and slavery and despotism descends upon humanity forever and ever. There's the nightmare scenario. As you might infer, I'm not a big believer in the nightmare scenario, mm. in part because... I don't think we know now. I don't think we'll know in 20 years. I doubt that we'll know in 50 years very much about how to enhance people. And if we do, I'm relatively conf confident that most societies, at least most societies that can afford to do it at all, will make, it, will make important changes pretty broadly accessible. And that's the future I predict with respect to humans. I do have a dystopian future fear about genome editing, but it has nothing to do with the, with the exclusive subject of the international summit in early December. I'm worried about non-humans. You know, it's tough to mess with humans. We, we worry about them. If you have something that a system that, you know, causes great damage to one baby out of a hundred, you're in big trouble. Humans have lawyers. We have IRBs, research ethics boards. We have, have tort lawyers. We have criminal laws that deal with humans. We care a lot about humans. Changing mosquitoes, people aren't all that worried about. So if you've got a, a system that changes mosquitoes and kills 99 out of 100 of the mosquito babies, nobody's very concerned. Hmm. You could use CRISPR-Cas9 to change the genomes of non-humans with very little regulatory oversight or other constraints, with very little attention, but in ways that could have huge effects. There's a refinement of CRISPR-Cas9 called gene drive, which makes, it, makes things spread through the population much more quickly. So let's say you want to change mosquitoes to make them incapable of carrying the malaria parasite. And some work on this was published last week. Sounds like a good thing. No malaria. 
if the mosquito humans humans only get malaria from mosquitoes they don't catch malaria from each other so if you can stop the mosquito from carrying it human malaria goes away so you make mosquitoes that have two copies of a mutant gene that says we can't handle the malarial parasite you release them into the wild they mate with mosquitoes that have two copies of a promalaria version of the gene all of those mosquito babies will have one copy of each and then the next generation following classic Mendelian inheritance patterns a quarter will have two copies of the mutant a quarter will have two copies of the so-called wild type the normal and half will have one of each and if it spreads through the population it does so slowly gene drive puts the CRISPR construct into the next generation so when a uh, let's call it uh, XX for the mutant mates with a YY for the normal all the all the mosquito offspring are XY but the CRISPR in the mosquito offspring changes their Y to an X and then it does it for the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and the great-great-great-grand mosquito children etc you could change the entire world's population of mosquitoes allele frequencies or alleles entirely in the space of a few years if it eradicates malaria and does nothing else that's a great thing but what happens if it has other negative consequences well if you have investigated it carefully in a controlled way for three or four years before you release it I'm less concerned if it's two guys in a garage I'm really concerned or it may not even be people who have um, who want to do good so the malarial example is one where people are trying to do something good but it might have some bad consequences so you'd sort of like it to be regulated somebody to take a good look, good hard look at it before they release it biological warfare gets a lot easier with CRISPR-Cas9 take for example E. coli common bacterium all of us have trillions and trillions of E. coli in our guts all the time easy to get a sample of E. coli just go to any toilet most E. coli is harmless every few years people die from eating at jack-in-the-box or chipotle or someplace else where they've been contaminated with bad versions of E. coli we know the gene sequence of E. coli we know the gene sequence of bad versions of E. coli two guys in a garage and maybe the garage is in Chicago or maybe the garage is in Mosul in Iraq which is currently controlled by ISIS take some E. coli and change it from the benign version to the pathogenic version and release it hmm. CRISPR-Cas9 makes that easier the good news is biological warfare is difficult you have to deliver it you have to worry about whether it's going to affect your own population making the nasty agent is only one of the rate limiting factors but CRISPR-Cas9 makes that rate limiting factor easier so I think the non-human uses are terrifying because it's so hard to control we pay so little attention to non-humans and our current regulatory apparatus in the US is way too patchwork uh, it doesn't cover it well even if it could regulate the two guys in the garage it might not so that's where I think we need to pay attention that's my nightmare scenario that somebody sticks somebody creates pathogenic e. coli with gene drive and suddenly 
you know, over the span of a few years, everybody in the country is getting sick from intestinal diseases caused by E. coli, and they may not even know that it's a biological warfare attack because mm. nature is a bioterrorist as well. You know, maybe it's a natural mutation. Maybe it's an ISIS mutation. So there's your nightmare scenario. That one, I think, is a realistic nightmare scenario that we should take steps to prevent. The fear of designer babies leading to a caste system of you know, incredible strength with genetically enhanced humans um, exploiting unenhanced humans, that one I'm going to leave to fiction. I'm not going to lose sleep about that one. Speaking of international abilities right now, do you know what different countries' technological abilities are right now and also the legal status of this technology in those countries? So in all countries that have good bio labs, I suspect there are people using CRISPR-Cas9. Okay. It has spread like gene drive. <laughs> it, it spread like wildfire. Um, you know, it was invented three years ago, and tens of thousands of labs are already using it. And probably by next year, it will be 20. It'll be scores of thousands of labs. So I doubt that there's a good bio lab or a good medical school or a good biological research institute anywhere in the world that doesn't have or won't soon have access to CRISPR-Cas9. Making babies this way is a little more complicated because you need an IVF clinic. Mm -hmm. Making mosquitoes this way is not particularly more complicated. You just need mosquito larvae. But there's some tricks, you know, there are some tricky issues about how to get the CRISPR into the cells. They're not beyond, a three-year-old couldn't do that, a 15-year-old couldn't do that, but somebody who graduated from college with a biology degree probably could without too much difficulty. So this is a very, it's a democratizing innovation. It makes something a lot easier, both within a culture and between cultures. So um, I'm sure South Korea has labs doing CRISPR-Cas9, and I suspect there's probably a lab in North Korea that's doing CRISPR-Cas9. In terms of laws, it depends on what you're talking about. So about 30 or 40 countries have banned human germline gene editing. They banned it 20 years before it was possible, uh, So, in a, kind of in a, in a vacuum, but that means 160 countries haven't banned it. The United States hasn't banned it, but in the United States, the FDA says this is under our jurisdiction and you can't do it until we approve it. So it's kind of an effective ban. In terms of the non-human uses, you know, that varies a lot from country to country as well. In some places, they don't allow that these would count as GM, as genetically modified, and wouldn't be allowed to be released. Uh, in others, they aren't GM. Uh, there's a lot of definitional uncertainty around this, as well as the question of even if you do try to regulate them, how do you effectively regulate two guys in a garage? So it's a mess. <laughs> it just—it sounds like an international issue, and I just wonder if there—if there's talk of international regulation. Yep, some of the opponents are very interested in an international treaty or some form of international regulation. I'm not very optimistic that that's likely to happen. Getting treaties through is hard. Uh, the more meaningless the treaty, the easier it is to get it through. 
So you might get through a treaty saying should only be used with appropriate controls and respect for human dignity, but then each country gets to define what that means. Mm-hmm. And there are over 200 countries in the world. You're going to get all 200 to sign up. And if they do sign up to actually enforce it, if human genome editing turned out to be a big deal, as I don't expect it to be, human germline genome editing, I can imagine that the uh, Netherlands Antilles could do a good business of being one place where it's legal. We have tax havens and banking havens. We would have genome editing havens. And if uh, Illinois banned it uh, and Wisconsin allowed it or the other way around, people would move, would, would go from one place to the other in order to get it done. Dr. Greeley, thank you so much for being on the show today. Sure, no problem. Again, that was Dr. Hank Greeley, and you've been listening to The Grok Science Show. Thanks again for tuning in. Join us next week for more from the world of science and technology. For Charles Lee, Frank Ling, and the rest of the Grok's crew, I'm Samantha Thomas. Have a great afternoon, and keep on grokking.